So open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 19, and we will begin reading in verse 31, John 19 and verse 31. And we will read down to verse the first part of verse 36. John 19.31 says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they may, might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that you might believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Once again, we see the phrase in verse 36 that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Once again, we are reminded that the Word of God should be our final authority for all that we believe and all that we practice. In our text, we see things being fulfilled after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are fulfilled because God said they would be fulfilled. And they are fulfilled by those who have no idea that they are instruments in the hand of God accomplishing every jot and tittle of the Word of God so that the Scripture, as the Scripture says, fail not. There are many who seek to prove and go to great lengths to seek to prove how the blood and the water flowing out of Jesus is agreeable with known science. You need only read a few commentaries and that shows up. But we should believe it because it is proven by God's Word. Not proven by science. Proven by God's Word and by His servant John who says, and he that saw it bear record. And then says in verse 36 that the Scripture should be fulfilled. And thus out of the mouth of two witnesses, John the servant of the Lord, and the Scripture itself, God confirms a thing. Now we'll come back to that in a minute, but I wanted to insert that in the opening statements of this morning's message. Science does not declare what we believe to be true. The Scriptures do. And if science agrees with the Scripture, praise the Lord. If it doesn't, Scripture's still true. Settles that in your heart this morning. No matter what doctors or scientists say about what may or may not have happened that day at the cross, what God says is true about the matter. If you ever get that thought, that truth settled down, rooted in your heart, 
It will radically change the way you look at the Word of God. Verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. It was the preparation. John expresses it in those terms. This is the preparation for the Jewish Sabbath. Not the preparation that took place two or three chapters earlier for the Passover, which had already been eaten before the cross. Mark puts it this way. Mark chapter 15 and verse 42. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, comma, that is, comma, the day before the Sabbath. So we are given information by Mark that the phrase the preparation day is the day before the Sabbath. Now, the Jewish Sabbath began on Friday at 6 p.m. and ended on Saturday at 6 p.m. The day before would be Thursday from 6 p.m. to Friday at 6 p.m. The preparation day then being Thursday from starting at 6 p.m. in the evening. Now listen, because this is important. Many commentaries refer to the day of preparation as Friday rather than Thursday. They look at it from a Gentile calendar, not from the Jewish calendar. Okay? And therefore, a religious holiday that is called Good Friday developed out of that thinking. Which, by the way, is a, came out of Roman Catholicism. It's a good enough reason for you to leave it alone. But, listen, if the Lord Jesus Christ was taken down from the cross and buried on Friday, there would not be enough time for Him to be in the grave three days and three nights. Okay? If He was buried on Friday evening and He arose Sunday morning, He spent Friday night and Saturday night in the grave. But the Scripture says three days and three nights. But if we count from Thursday, which the Jewish calendar, just before 6 p.m., then He would have Friday or Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. And then he would have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. The scriptures cannot conflict with each other. So if God said three days and three nights in the grave, then that's what God means. And so this Friday idea needs to be put away from us so that we might engage with the scripture teaches us. That's a side note on this day of preparation. Day of preparation would begin on Thursday at 6 p.m. and end on Friday at 6 p.m. when the Sabbath began. The reason for them going to, the, to Pilate was that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. 
they went to Pilate and asked that their legs be broken because the Sabbath day is coming and they wanted them to die quickly. This request was based upon their law. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23 says, If a man have committed a sin worthy of death and he be put to death and thou hang him on the tree... His body shall not remain all night upon the tree. Thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is cursed of God. That the land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Roman crucifixion could take sometimes between three or five or sometimes seven or eight days before the individual would die on the cross. Christ has been on the cross now for several hours. But the day of preparation is coming. And uh, Sabbath is coming. And the Jews, well, we cannot have the law broken here. And so they went to Jesus, uh, to Pilate and requested that the legs be broken. Once again, We see the Jews being meticulous in their efforts to honor the law regarding the Sabbath. They were doing this, what this request to keep the law as best they could. They were doing it to keep from being religiously defiled. They did not want the land defiled as it was expressed in Deuteronomy nor did they want themselves defiled. They had already come to Pilate, remember, bringing Jesus in John 18. And they called Pilate out uh, to the judgment hall, and they set Jesus before them, and they didn't want to go into the judgment hall, remember? John 18 and verse 28. Why? Lest they should be defiled, but they should eat the Passover. They didn't want to be defiled by going into the judgment hall. So they're ready to condemn Jesus. They're ready to turn Him over to a murderer. They're ready to do all that, but they don't want to defile themselves. That's what this is. And it speaks volumes. Those who hated the Lord Jesus Christ to the point where they were willing to put Him to death. Who hated His message who paid for his betrayal, 30 pieces of silver to Judas, who hired false witnesses against him, who used their political power against Pilate when he was ready to release the Lord Jesus Christ, who swore their complete allegiance to Caesar. We have no king but Caesar, they cried out who mocked the Lord Jesus Christ and railed on Him as He was being crucified and while He hung on the cross. And those same ones who paid the Roman soldiers to lie about the resurrection, those were the very ones who were so concerned that the bodies of these three not be left on the cross because it would defile 
the land on the Sabbath. Do you not see what a mockery that is? Let us not be like them, brethren. Let us not observe on the outside while the inside is full of corruption. Let us not paint up the outside and fix up the outside while the inside is dead man's bones. Let us, those of us who are true Christians, not be like any of those Jews that said, put them to death quickly so that we can observe our Sabbath. Let us not be like the religious who have their list of things to do and believe that they have honored God with that list, and yet who have not been born again and have no true heart of love for the Lord Jesus Christ or for His Word. They besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. The purpose in breaking the legs was that the one who was crucified might die quickly. Now the Romans didn't do this. It was not part of their law. It was Jewish custom that was being observed here. The Jews wanted their legs broken so that the weight of the body could not be pushed up so they could breathe properly, so that they would hang down and suffocate quickly. The Scripture says, Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with Him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that He was dead already, they brake not His legs. With authority from the Roman governor himself, they went to Pilate to get permission to put these that are crucified to a quicker death. With this authority from the Roman governor himself, the soldiers came to Calvary to break the legs of those who had been crucified. They broke the legs of one criminal on one side of Jesus and then the other criminal on the other side of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that He was already dead. And they did not break His legs. Two things that I want us to draw out of this. One is, we have forgotten because the focus of the Scriptures has been on what Jesus Christ has, is doing at the cross. We have forgotten that early in the day, our Lord had said to one of those criminals, today you will be with me in paradise. We have forgotten Him. He is not fresh in our minds. But He is a child of God. A Christian. Birthed into the kingdom of God while hanging on a Roman cross. What shall we say about Him? The criminal who is now a new believer, hours old in the Lord, a genuine Christian, having learned of Christianity from the Lord Himself, did not escape further pain in order to gain a place 
in heaven. We think sometimes of Christianity as though now that I'm a Christian, God owes me something. He owes me a good life. He owes me a comfortable life. He owes me a life without pain or sorrow or heartache or heartbreak. And we think like that. We believe the lies of the Charismatics and the Pentecostals and those who have said that now you're a Christian. Christianity is a bed of rose petals as you'll be ushered off into glory. We have failed to read the Scriptures for ourselves and learn that Jesus Christ has told His disciples, you know, you want to follow Me? The birds have of the, of the, of the air. they got nests they can go to at night. Foxes, they got their den to go to. I don't have a place to lay my head. You want to follow Me? You want to follow Me? It's going to cost you. And the Apostle Paul, as he established new churches in the first century, coming back after his first missionary journey would say to them we through much tribulation shall enter into the kingdom of God and here hangs on the right side of the Savior a newborn Christian suffering dying with heaven as his prospect with a promise of God still ringing in his ears today you will be with me in paradise Good, he thinks, this pain will soon be gone and I'll be with my God. And up walks a Roman soldier with a mallet and breaks both of his legs. What excruciating pain was his. His life as a Christian was short and filled with great pain and difficulty. But isn't that a definition of true Christianity anyway? That our life as a Christian is short compared to eternity and filled with great tribulation as we walk the road to glory. Let's try to keep in mind that next door to Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross is a young believer who has suffered greatly to be ushered into heaven. The second thing I want us to think about is this. The Roman soldiers had gotten authority to break the legs of those at Calvary from Pilate himself. They were not at liberty to ignore the governor's orders. They were not at liberty to determine for themselves which one they're going to break, legs they're going to break, which one they're going to allow legs not to be broken. This soldier does not have that authority. He is given a command, break the legs. And they come to the first and they come to the second, but then they come to Jesus. They are soldiers under orders. Could they go back to Pilate or to their commanding officer and say, but we decided not to break the legs of the man on the middle cross because after all, he was already dead. Wait a minute. Can that happen in a military situation? No. 
And yet that's exactly what takes place. For soldiers of low rank, having authority from the governor himself, make a decision not to break the legs of the man in the middle cross. Oh, brethren, why did they not break the legs of Jesus Christ? Our answer will come in a few more verses. But you already know the answer. You already know. The answer is that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Oh, hallelujah. Do you see these details? This little thing just passes before us and we keep on reading as though it were an insignificant issue. And yet, God, in two more verses will say, three more verses will say, all of this took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And so, but having seen that Jesus Christ was already dead, one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And, and, and he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, and that ye might believe. One of the soldiers taking it upon himself takes his spear and thrusts it into the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what side, but all the arguments in the commentaries as to why it must be this and not that. Let me recommend the Scriptures to you. What side? Well, God is silent on it. Oh, then I should be. Some teach that this blood and this water flowing out of the side of the Lord Jesus Christ was a natural function of the corruption of the body of Jesus Christ. That He had been dead for several hours now and, and the blood began to separate. And the body, as the body began to decay there on the cross. And some of the commentaries of men who you may respect, throw this argument out. But what does the Scripture say about the body of Jesus Christ corrupting? Acts chapter 2, yes. Verse 26 and verse 27. And it reads, Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Why? Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. The Bible teaches us that the body of Jesus Christ did not corrupt. Well, you say, Brother Pat, how is that possible? All flesh corrupts. It is only possible because God kept it from corrupting. And Jesus Christ rejoiced at that. And so these commentators that are talking about the corruption going on inside the body and the blood separating from the plasma and all of their arguments based upon medicine have not stopped long enough to just simply believe the Scriptures. Corruption was not going on because God said 
that it was not going on. Others will say that Jesus Christ died of a broken heart, that His heart exploded from under the stress and the emotion of all that was going on. This stressful emotional event had laid hold on Him to the degree where His heart just broke. And because His heart broke on the inside of His body, the uh, sack around His body called the pericordium around His body filled up with blood and water. Brethren, be careful about emotional appeals to what is going on on the cross of Jesus Christ. Be careful when speaking of the death of the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not add to or take away from the Scriptures because the Scripture makes no statement of that kind at all. Do not base what happened at Calvary upon science, but upon what God has said. What do we know with certainty? What do the Scriptures teach us that we can rely with certainty upon? First, we know with certainty that the Lord Himself determined the time of His death. It was not stress or emotional upheaval or a weakness of body from the blood draining from Him. It was none of those things that brought about death that day. Jesus Christ is in absolute control of all that is taking place on that cross that day. John chapter 10, many chapters before this, he says in verse 18, No man taketh it, that is my life, from me. I lay it down of myself. John 10, 18. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my Father. On the cross at Calvary, Jesus Christ has the authority of God Himself to relinquish His life at the moment that that becomes necessary. He said it again in John 19 and verse 30. John 19 and verse 30 we read, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar and said, It is finished, he bowed his self, his head, and I will supply the word, he gave up the ghost. He gave up the ghost. Matthew uses a different word to express what took place. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50. Go over there with me and see the word used by under, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Study not only the Word of God, brethren, but the words of God. Matthew records Jesus, when He had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Ah! And John says, 
that he gave up the ghost. Matthew, using a different Greek word, says he yielded up the ghost. Now what is behind that English word yield? As the Lord Jesus Christ yielded up his spirit to the Father. The Greek word means to send forth. It means to leave something so that that which is left behind remains. Jesus Christ sent His Spirit to His Father and He left His body behind so that it might be buried. That's what Matthew is teaching us. Isn't that what Paul teaches us? To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. If we are absent from the body and present with the Lord... What do they do with our body on the earth? They bury it. But where are we? With the Lord. The Spirit returns unto the Lord that made it. Jesus says to His Father, He committed His Spirit unto His Father. He sent Himself to heaven and left his body behind to be buried. Jesus Christ is in absolute control of all the events of that day. The commentators will have you shed a tear over how weak and frail he was, over how, how, how distressed he must have been, such an emotional thing he was going through. And all of that may be true, brethren, but none of it shows up. What shows up is God in absolute control so that every event taking place at Calvary's cross is satisfying the Word of God so that when He said it is finished, there would be nothing else that needed to be done by any sinner that would come to Jesus Christ He would save them and take them all the way to glory because He finished it all. It's interesting, this word, this Greek word behind the word yielded. It is translated in 1 John 1.9 as the English word forgive. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive, to send our sins away so that we remain a child of God. Wow! Y'all wait a minute while I rest right there. That deserves a sila. If we confess our sins, He sends them away. Well, where do we go? We're right where we're supposed to be in the light where the Son of God's blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He forgives them. He forgives them. He sends them from us. They are not there anymore. They have been sent away. In forgiving His children, God sends their sins away and keeps them. Remember the definition? The definition is that to leave something behind that remains. So the sin is gone. What remains? A child of God, forgiven by His Father, basking in the light as He is in the light. 
Hallelujah. That's the first thing we know. With absolute certainty. He did not die from grief or over stress or emotional or weakness or frailty. He is in absolute control of life and breath. Now, brethren, if He is not absolute control of life and breath in His own life, how can He be in control of life and death in our life? How can He keep us alive until the ordained day that we are to go off to be with Him in glory? The second truth that we are absolutely sure of is this, that the body of Jesus Christ did not corrupt nor begin the corruption process while He was on the cross. While He was on the cross. The third truth that we can be absolutely sure of is that blood and water flowed out of the side of the Lord Jesus Christ when it was pierced by that Roman sword. But we do not know that He died of a broken heart causing that. Men, even some Christians, want things explained so that the natural man can accept them. So they can read the Scriptures and say, oh, that makes sense with science. I can believe that now that science confirms it. The natural man wants that. It, he desires that. Now, science may agree with the Scriptures. But the fact that science agrees with the Scriptures is no foundation for you to believe the Scripture. Did you catch that? The foundation for you to believe the Scripture is because God said it. Because it is true. The natural men want things explained in a natural way so they can accept it. This is a great error. The things of the Bible are spiritual. The natural man cannot receive them. The natural man cannot accept them. They are foolishness to him. To take on face value what the Scripture says simply because God said it is not enough for the natural man. But for the child of God it is. Well, Brother Pat, how do you think it happened? Well, let me say this as kindly as I can. God has not told me. So my thoughts on the matter are really not of any importance. What has God said? The side of Jesus Christ was pierced with the sword of a Roman soldier and out from the side flowed water and blood. But how can that happen? Because God is in control of everything that day. John's explanation is all we need. Because God said it. The fourth and final thing we know that our Lord was already dead when the Roman soldier plunged his spear into his side. The spear did not kill Jesus Christ. Some have thought that. But the Scripture plainly says that He was dead already. 
He was already dead because He had already sent His Spirit back to His Father. And he that saw it bear record, the Scripture goes ahead, and his record is true. And he that knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. We have the testimony of a pagan Roman soldier that says that when he came to Jesus Christ, he was already dead. We have the testimony of God's representative, God's mouthpiece, God's a God called man. John's own testimony was Jesus was already dead and that blood and water flowed out of his side when his side was pierced by the Roman soldiers. And we have the testimony of Scriptures. These things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. We have the threefold testimony before us. Medical science does not have a place in these three witnesses. If they want to come along and try to explain it, allow them to do so. But we do not believe it on the basis of what they say. We believe it on the basis of what God said. And so, what is the significance then of the blood and the water? Because this is really what we want to get to. Because... John testifies that blood and water came out. And somehow, that's important. And God put it in the Scriptures. And God has preserved it for us. And somehow, that becomes important for us. And it's not important to prove that He's dead because we already knew that He was dead. Because He was dead before the blood and water came out. It's not important to prove that He was dead. Then what is the importance of it? Well... There are two spiritual truths associated with blood and water that are being testified to in the death of Jesus Christ. Remember, everything about the death of Jesus Christ is about the salvation of His people. Remember that what's going on at Calvary's cross is not about physical things so much as spiritual things. Remember that it's not about the body but the soul and the spirit. It is God and God's law being satisfied and justice being satisfied on behalf of sinners. Remember that behind all the physical stuff, the crown of thorns, the wood, the nails that everybody wants to focus on, that behind that is the real truth. The real important importance is not that blood and water proves that He was dead. We already know that. But blood and water has something to do with the salvation of God's people. John mentions them again in his first epistle, but in reverse order, speaking to Christians. In John, 1 John 5 and verse 6, he writes, This is He that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. 1 John 5 and verse 6. The blood and water is God's way of testifying that eternal life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. It is not proof that He is dead. We already know that. Then what is it? It is God's way of testifying that eternal life is found in His Son, Jesus Christ.
They are God's witnesses of the truth related to God's salvation. John, in 1 John 5, 6, this is He that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And this is... And it is the Spirit that bears witness. And the Spirit is truth. And then verse 8. We receive the witness of men. The witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which He hath testified of Himself. Verse, uh, that was verse 9, I'm sorry. And there are three that bear witness in the earth. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. These three agree in one. They bear witness. The blood, the water, and the Spirit bear witness as to what God is doing. So, what is God saying? What is the testimony being declared before us? The first that John mentions is blood. Blood testifies from the rest of the Scripture of redemption accomplished. Without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of sin. Of reconciliation being accomplished. Of propitiation being accomplished. Redemption, I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. Reconciliation, I was once an enemy, now I'm a friend of God's and made a friend by mercy. Propitiation, God was once angry, but that anger is turned away. And now... He that, in, that was at odds with me is friends with me. These all by the blood of Jesus Christ. Blood testifies of forgiveness gained, of justification bestowed, of eternal life promised and gained through faith in Jesus Christ. Blood testifies of those who were once afar off, now being made nigh, near, by the blood of Jesus Christ. It testifies of divine love, promised and fulfilled, of adoption, that I, being adopted into the family of God through the perfect work of my Savior Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. Blood testifies of the once and for all sacrifice made by Jesus Christ to God on my behalf, to set me free from sin. Blood testifies and is a witness to me. As I look at Calvary's cross and see the blood of Jesus Christ shed, the rest of the Scripture opens up. Every time blood is mentioned, I see there at Calvary's cross this promise, this promise, this promise, this promise, this statement, this truth, this doctrine, all borne out and witnessed by God on the day that Jesus Christ died and shed His blood on my behalf. I read Scriptures like Hebrews 13 and verse 20 that speak of the blood of an everlasting covenant. Not a covenant that may be broken or laid aside and abrogated, but an everlasting one where God would save me from my sins and remove my sins from me. It speaks of a blood of a new covenant. Matthew 26 verse 28, whereby that was shed for the remission of sins, for the removal of sins. 
speaks of redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. Speaks of having been loved and washed from our sins in His own blood. Revelation 1, verse 5. Every verse after this, as the Old, as the New Testament opens up before us, every verse after this that has anything to do with the death of Christ, I find there at Calvary in the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ on my behalf. But what of water? Water, by the way, let me warn you, some of the Protestants say that water speaks to baptism. Don't believe that. It has absolutely nothing to do with infant baptism. You can get yourself messed up in a lot of doctrine by reading commentaries. Be careful. Know the Scripture first. Water. Water. What does it testify to? Water speaks of cleansing and purification. Water speaks of regeneration and sanctification. Water testifies to the work of the Holy Spirit in the new birth and in the sanctification of, His, of, of, of God's people. You see, brethren, it is not enough that Jesus... I'm going to be careful with this statement. It is not enough that Jesus died and shed His blood, but the Spirit of God must apply that to the people for whom Christ has died. You understand that they go together. That the Holy Spirit must take what Christ has done on your behalf and bestow it upon you and give you a new heart and a new life through what Jesus has done for you and cleanse you and purify you so that you can stand before God clean. That is the work of regeneration and sanctification. Jesus spoke of it in John 3. In verse 5, when he said, Except a man be born of the Spirit and of water, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And there are commentaries all over the place on that verse too. But whatever it is speaking of, it's speaking of the new birth, which in the Greek means comes from above. So, whatever comes from above, that is, a new birth and water, is what brings you into the kingdom of God. So it's not baptism, is it? Because that's not from above. So what is it? It speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. The Father has chosen. The Son has redeemed. But, still they must come. Still they must be... Uh, the, the work of Christ must be applied. Still, they must be born again. And the Spirit must do that work. And so blood and water are necessary. So we read in John, I mean Titus, chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us. By what? By the washing of regeneration. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit of God to birth us into the kingdom and to give us life out of death is a washing in the blood of Jesus Christ our Savior. This is doctrinal. But it is precious truth as we look back on the work of God in saving sinners. 
We see that in the new covenant, God doesn't say, if you do this, then I'll do that. But we see in the new covenant, God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to choose you out. I'm going to redeem you. And then when your back is turned to me and you're living in sin, I'm going to send the Spirit of God after you and He's going to quicken you and bring you to life and you're going to turn to Christ and embrace Him as your Savior. And I'm going to bring you all the way to glory because I'm going to seal you with that same Spirit and He's going to sanctify you. He's going to cleanse you and He's going to, he's going to take My Word and He's going to use it in your life and the blood of Christ is so powerful it's going to keep you from sin and God is you're sealed by God Himself and glory is yours because of what I've done for you not what you've done for me. And so blood and water comes rushing out. And God's witnesses that salvation has been accomplished and it will be applied. And all of this that happened at Calvary, including the piercing of the side and the flowing of the blood and water, was for one purpose. As John closes out verse 35, with four words, that you might believe. In order that, this is the purpose of it all, that you might believe. Are you looking at Calvary with right eyes? Or are you just looking at it uh, from the cornal eyes of someone who's shedding a tear because the body of Jesus Christ is hurting? Or are you looking at it with spiritual eyes? Do you see what God is doing to save sinners? Can you look past the wood and the nails to what God is doing? That you might believe. Now there are those among uh, sovereign grace men that say that, that, uh, that believing is a work and God doesn't save you on, on the basis of repentance and, and believing. And we can argue all day about that, but Jesus said that you might believe. You know what's interesting to me? You want to read a verse that will kind of blow your mind on this subject? Go to, go to John chapter 5 with me. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man by a pool. And he's, he's been there many years and he speaks to him, he raises him up and he takes up his bedroll and he walks out of this great multitude. And it was done on the Sabbath. And the Jews blew their mind because he broke the Sabbath. And Jesus said, I, my father works and I work. And then they got even more angry because he's now saying that he's God himself. And they're wanting to kill him in John chapter 5. This is the beginning of that intense hatred that wants to kill Jesus. It all begins there in John 5. And we get to verse 34. And I want you to read the phrase. I'm just going to read part of the verse. These things I say that you might be saved. John 5.34 These things I say that you might be saved. Who's He talking to? He's talking to Jews that hate Him. These things I'm saying to you that you might be saved. Brother Pat, He's talking to Jews that hate Him. He's not talking to the elect. He's not talking to those who, who are already born again and because they're already born again, they're going to believe in Him. He's not talking to them. He's talking to Jews that, 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 that want to kill Him. 
And He said, I'm talking to you this way and I'm telling you these things in order that you might be saved. He's talking to sinners. Now you may not know anything about this argument and I'm glad you don't if you don't. There are these that say that, that, that the Gospel message is only for those who have already been born again to know what God has already done for them are way out of the ballpark. They're not even in left field. They don't even understand what the Scriptures are talking about. These things I say to you in order that you might be saved. Who's He talking to? Sinners. In fact, He's talking to Jews that hate Him. In John chapter 20 and verse 31, we, we actually began our study many, many months ago by saying this is one of John's purposes. John 20, 31, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, that in the process of believing, you might have life through His name. John 20, 31. Those last words at the end of verse 35. All of this, everything that I've been writing about, everything that I can testify to, everything that God has testified to, all the Scripture being fulfilled, all of this is for one purpose and one purpose only, that you might believe so that you might be saved. Can you see that? Do you see it? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Because all of this was done that you might believe. Let's pray.